Hey everybody, this is Brent Watkinson with Everyday Artist. This episode is part two of the conversation with John Foster. John and I talk about enjoying the process of creating a piece of art, and of course that can be interpolated into any creative venture, such as dance, sculpting, writing, not just making images. If you've not heard episode one with John, please do listen to it because his message is strong, endearing, and personal. And I think you will find it very engaging. Please visit my website, brentwatkinson.com, for images of John's work and a direct link to his website, johnfoster.com. I hope you subscribe to this podcast, and as always, it is free to do so. Like I've said for many years, doggone it, the world needs more John Foster. Or you can look at it from another angle and ask yourself, can I have too much John Foster in my life? The answer is no. So, for your edification and listening pleasure, a little more John Foster today. Let's get into it. Well, was there a seminal experience that made you turn the corner and something clicked in your work? Or was it very gradual and then finally you started getting jobs? How did you finally start working in illustration? It was, I think it was gradual. Um, and it's a mix of many things. Um, you know, working at it, working at it, embracing my influences and definitely the influences being at that point when I started getting work was Rick Barry and Phil Hale. And, um, and, and there was trouble that would come along with that because I was very, what, were you hanging out with them or what? I, I don't know. Uh, not, not, not yet. Not Rick. And no, I didn't, I never hung out with Phil. He was already away in England at that time. Um, when I did start hanging out with Rick, but I was seeing the work and this was work that I just loved. It just spoke to me, the painting of it and, and the, the body language and the, and it was unique enough, not typical, uh, that, you know, just everything about it. Um, I loved, um, and it was helping, and I was kind of teaching myself to paint again in oils, uh, as an illustrator, it's different when you're painting in school and you're painting from the model and stuff like this. But then when you actually paint, uh, as an illustrator and you're painting an illustration, it's, it's, it's a different process, um, than like live painting or drawing. So teaching myself to paint again and looking and emulating what was going on there. And, um, in some cases too much. I mean, there were some angry people with me for that obvious influence but things along that line uh started to come and then i did uh, then i was i did know rick barry at the time and rick was always a very open artist about um working with he liked to work with other artists and uh collaborate and you know work together in a studio and were you in the same city no he he's about an hour away a little over an hour away in boston area and uh, and I'm in Providence and, um, 
And so I would drive up there to, it was, we, the studio at that point was just in his house and uh, we would just work together. And, you know, we weren't sitting there like trading artwork back and forth and doing things, you know, we worked on a couple of things collaboratively, but it was more just being around, you know, normal, just being around another artist and they're working on what they work on. You work what you work on kind of thing. And, you know, and he definitely had a mentor role in that. Um, and enlightened me to a lot of way of thinking. He, he, Rick definitely embraces the, the uh, process of making art as, as a joy and an exploration. And I, at that point was still all about the goal of the finish and not liking the process. But that also bothered me because I, then I would avoid the process because it was, you know, painful or, and so well, I, I think that's pretty common, though, because when you're trying to get work and trying to learn, you need that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Who cares what's on the rainbow? You got to get that pot of gold. And it's yeah. interesting that you could hook up with somebody that was enjoying the process as much as the end. You know, maybe again, it was just that I knew that's what I needed, maybe. And and looking not not consciously, but it appealed to me and then seeing, you know, he, he definitely danced to his own tune or does. And, um, uh, and that, you know, is something that I've always wanted my, for myself, even though I'm going and dancing to, to his tune, you know, as, his, as a mentee, but some of the most formative things about that really helped me advance in my work were, were told to me by Rick Wood, you know, the idea that, you know, you're playing with colorful mud. You're painting. You're playing with colorful mud. It's fun. It's the you embrace the process. A brushstroke is exotic and sensual. Just just the one and put two of them together and cross over. It's just there's a lot of fun right there already. This is and it's not and if you start thinking about the process and enjoying that, it's not about the destination. If you if you take the 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 metaphor of going on a hike, it's not about like just getting to your destination on the hike. It's about where you where where you're walking, the paths, the rivers you go by, the mountains you see, the you know, the forests and the the animals. You you're looking around, you're enjoying the walk, not just the idea of getting to a place. And that made a big difference for me in the work that I was doing and in doing more work. And and also the idea that, you know, you 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 don't embrace perfection in it. You embrace the process and just exploration. He would also say one of the things that stuck with me too was like, you know, so paint on it. So what if it doesn't work out? It just becomes a board again. You know, it's no big deal. It's not going to kill you. <laughs> That's pretty good. I like that. And, uh, and those were things that, so my career was starting here and, and, and that was helping me become more of the artist I am today um, you know, being with Rick and having, there were things that you wanted or know, but sometimes you need someone to clarify and also tell you it's okay that yes, you're correct. And, and you're thinking on that, you know, someone you look up to, and that's definitely what Rick did for me. Um, but, but what we talked about a turning in the career, so it still was slow, but it, it did kind of happen within, probably 
a half a year, the things just started to, once something got into Spectrum, I got into Spectrum. Um, was it Crowbot? It was, was no, one? it wasn't Crowbot. It was uh, two things got in Spectrum 3. I, it was the first time I had entered. I didn't know Spectrum was around until Spectrum 2 was out. And so then I, you know, resolved to apply or, or to uh, submit to artwork for the three. And I got two things in. And one of them caught the eye of an art director at Wizards of the Coast. And uh, Paul Hanchett, who was also a very formative, great guy, great art director, worked with him for years. He's not there anymore, but he got me a like a, a poster to do, which is... You know, I was so excited. This is it. This is the beginning kind of thing. And and uh, did that. And then he liked the poster, you know, and we got along. And so I, then I did lots of the whole, you know, I did my, my due diligence of black and white interiors for role-playing game books, you know, hundreds of those. And they don't pay that well, but I made sure, I just did my best. Maybe that's ego, but I... Didn't I didn't work up to a pay scale. I just did the best I could. And because ultimately it's never it never does you as the artist a favor to work up to a pay scale because everybody just anybody that looks at your work after that just thinks that's what you're capable of. They're not thinking about what you got paid. They're just thinking, oh, he's not very good or something. So even well, if I was I, getting I think most of the people that you and I hang out with, well, all of the people that, that we hang out with, they did the same thing. If they got paid a dollar, they would put 110% effort into it. And if they got, you know, $10,000, same thing. Or if it was right. free, nobody said, well, you know, I'm not getting paid very much, so I'm just going to phone this one in. I, everybody right. I know gave it everything they had. Yeah, you have because that is your it's your resume. Each each new piece is is your resume. You're only as good as the last piece that the you know someone art director saw. So I did a lot of that, and and then I got some covers, uh, and so I would send those into Spectrum, and I got some covers also for role playing game books. So it wasn't just black and white work. So each year I was having more and more to submit to Spectrum, and. And Spectrum, Kathy and Arnie were always very supportive. And Kathy and Arnie Fenner. Oh, Fenner. I'm sorry. Yes. And uh, they, you know, well, I got to know them not right away, but I just say that really without Spectrum, I don't know if my career would have taken off when it did or as quickly as it did. And, but Spectrum got me out there and in front of a lot of art directors and people and known. And, and then just then things started to really pick up. And then also going to more work conducive uh, conventions, at least for me, would be like San Diego Comic-Con. That's a different beast now, too. Now, um, you went out there as an exhibitor or? Well, I went out there just a as a casual guest. observer. Yeah, a casual observer with a portfolio in hand and uh, trying to find work here and there and uh, meeting other artists. Uh, and um, probably the first time I met George Pratt was at a Comic Con. John Van Fleet. Just kidding. Who? Yeah. Who? Just yeah. Kidding. yeah. <laughs> and uh, I love you, George. <laughs> we all love George. I'm a little vague on some of the the 
chronology of first at conventions or when I worked with Rick or not along that line, because some things might be going back or forward in this in this timeline. But that was one of the things, though, more exposure to other artists and possibilities and and meeting writers, you know, the whole idea of networking. Um, and I wasn't, I think the secret to networking is not to be looking to network. It's just looking to make friends and have conversations with interesting people. And that's what happened. And then I did, and, and a writer got me in front of some people at Dark Horse for the Star Wars covers. And so, and Star Wars was also a huge, a huge thing that, because so many people, I hadn't, I had no idea, you know, I knew Star Wars was way cool and stuff and I'm, I'm a nerd, but that it was still so popular and so many people were so, so into it that, you know, as I was doing Star Wars stuff, I was getting way more, well, I was getting, you know, I was getting attention. I was getting airtime. I was, you know, becoming more recognizable because of the Star Wars stuff. And I think that really threw me into people actually recognizing a name for work uh, through Spectrum and then Star Wars. And through, in Star Wars was the comic book work covers, covers for Dark Horse. And after that, I kind of, you know, didn't look back and it kept going and more opportunities turned into more opportunities and, and, you know, doing a certain kind of work and having work in spectrum. And then uh, with some progressive forward thinking art directors at national geographic, uh, Chris Klein said, you know, these people do narrative figurative work. Why can't they do it? You know, you know, this historical, you know, paleontological work or whatever. So he contacted me and that's how I started at national geographic and doing work there and, things you know you've worked for them for a long time haven't you yeah 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 quite yeah quite quite a few years and 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 i love working for them too you know so it was getting an opportunity to do different things is is even though i love science fiction and fantasy and comic books but if that's all you know i love hamburgers but if i eat hamburgers every day every meal i'm really not going to want to have a hamburger that's just silly. That's just silly. Yeah, I know I that, that is, isn't it? But anyways, uh, <laughs> so <laughs> also Star we, Wars solves everything. Yes. Continue. There's your secret, and then uh, so <laughs> so getting other work was exciting and and you know just new interests coming in and uh, that things being able to do that uh, plaques for parks you know national parks uh so artwork for plaques for national parks and uh our tv tv work uh, i was gonna say you did a huge job for i will call it an alternative network for their opening credit scene yes yes yep and, and then, i know uh, we don't we don't re- need to really mention who it is but it was big big and then for the first season yeah and then um that they used the intro uh, and i worked for a little because of other artist friends that i'd met i had a intro or an, an art uh, a director uh, an italian director a very young new uh, director contacted me for some to go to italy to work for for oh about four months on a on a film um uh, doing concept work and storyboards and I had never done storyboards before. So I 
taught myself, you know, reasonably well how to do storyboards. I've seen the work. Yeah, you did res- reasonably well. Well, it's all that camera <laughs> angle stuff that I'm like, I don't, that would be wide angle. I'd be, um, mm. <laughs> Dude, give me a well, 30 millimeter. Um, when yeah, did your, but, when did your book come along and how did that happen? The book came along through Kathy and Arnie. And, um, when was that though? Oh gosh, it's probably 10 years ago at, yeah, at least 10 years ago, more than that. But, and it, through Kathy and Arnie and, um, I guess, you know, I was well enough known and people, people like the work that the, you know, they felt like they could make an art book of it and sell it. And um, so there was an art book of a small art book that came, that was before that through a small game company that, and they made several art books. They were going to, had this imprint, but they, they didn't have the interest to continue it. Very small edition of that book. Uh, It was called Progressions and a small. Was it all your work? Yeah. Okay. All my work. And then the uh, Revolutions, The Art of John Foster, through uh, Kathy and Arnie. And um, that was is a bigger book and um, sexier. And I'm very happy. Well, I'm very happy with both books. But, of course, you know, with the time and effort that Kathy and Arnie put into it and uh, editing and putting it together and that, the, that they wanted me to make an art book is just awesome. And, oh, uh, and and it's beautiful. And of course, anything Kathy and Arnie Fenner do is wonderful and top notch. It's a big hardcover book, beautifully printed on fantastic paper. And they just did a top notch job, which surprises no one. And your artwork is fantastic. It's a beautiful showcase for your artwork. Thank you, Brent. <laughs> I feel that was actually really well done. Well done. I feel like I actually wrote that for you, but that's that's better than I would have written. <laughs> I appreciate it. That's well, good. it's all but true. It's, it's true, though, about Kathy and Arnie that when they they've just made some of the best art books out there, and I'm sure John Flesk does too. I, I um, uh, you know, I just I didn't get a chance to work with John, but um, but I just can't say good enough things about Kathy and Arnie Fenner. And what they've done for the industry and what they've done for me. It's just, and, and just, you know, friendship and moral support. Great people. There are a lot of people that would echo those thoughts. There is. That's true. John, what would you tell someone, whether a student or working professional or someone that's trying to be a working professional, what can you tell them that they can do right now today to start getting better at drawing? Well, it would be something that they hear all the time, and which is practice, practice, practice. But think of it, think of it this way. Think of it as exercise. Um, if you were going to run a marathon it, and you're training for it, you don't wait till the week before and, and start running like 13-mile runs. You'd die and wouldn't work either. You run a little bit every day. And you progressively, you know, from months in advance and progressively longer runs and some are shorter, some are longer and some are epic. But, you know, you're you're doing a lot of training, a little, little bit of training. You're not 
running a marathon every day. That's not how it works. And with drawing, you should do that too. You should just do, even if you were doing five minutes of drawing a day, it's better than drawing for two hours, one day a week. What are you, what are you looking for when you're drawing? What are you trying to say or learn? When I'm drawing, I don't know that I'm trying when i sit there and try to say something i i I tend to get go closed down so i try to open up those possibilities and not say anything specifically and see what gets said i know that's a tough one but it's you you let the process inform you this harkens back to what was important to me uh about you know making art so Instead of sitting, oh, I want to make this or find this or develop a style, um, maybe I would look at influences and think of a certain artist or certain things that, you know, that have bouncing around in my head, but then sit down and draw freely, openly. I mean, there's actually something said to be said about, you know, emulating the style of an artist for yourself you know, as practice to understand it more, you know, you, you don't get to be that artist out in the professional world. Um, but, you know, but all artists learn from other artists and are influenced by all artists are influenced by other artists. And, what, what do you think yeah. artists learn from working in a sketchbook consistently? Well, I think they, again, it's training you get a little better with each time you learn to, okay, if you're observing things uh, out in front of you and drawing them, you know, you're looking at the room and a chair at the coffee shop and, you know, the people at the counter and drawing that and et cetera, that's good. You're, you're getting hand-eye coordination going on uh, that way. And you're learning how to, you're learning how to translate a real scene into a shorthand of abstract marks it's what drawing is. If you're drawing and doodling for yourself, you know, which I do a lot, you're, you're, you're opening up doors in your imagination and trying to follow little threads or, you know, I kind of, I'll, I'll, I'll be really mushy and sugary here is that you're just, you know, you're chasing that butterfly through the field and <laughs> seeing where it goes. Like it. Um, and, and that is good practice for you and your brain. It's also hand-eye coordination in terms of drawing. And, you know, there's something to be said about how you hold the pencil, how you use it, and, you know, a freedom of, of the mark. And, and there's a lot of times where if you draw every day, then you can finally kind of go, I always make a mark like this. And I don't like it. It's all too hesitant and cautious kind of thing. So uh, let me try it this way. I mean, I remember doing that a lot and I should still do it. Be like, sometimes I draw with my left hand just to change it up. Or sometimes I'd, you know, say, just draw like anybody else except for me. (laughs) And I used to tell students all the time, hey, if you're having trouble drawing the figure today, just pretend you're somebody that draws really well and just have it. (laughs) Well, there's something to be said about that. There is. If, you know, in in a mindset, if you could be like, okay, today I am Picasso in his early years. Maybe you could be, if you want to be, Picasso in his later years, but I'm thinking of like the blue period and, uh, and you want to draw, okay, Michelangelo, let's go there. Then think of that way and, and, and draw that way and draw with the confidence and, and, and approach it that way. So if you draw every day and you don't make it a painful process, it's not a chore, it's a joy, 
you'll you know you have more opportunity to to explore this way and and more explorations and practice means getting better and how growth in, how important is the word interpretation in all of this um interpretation is i think very important you know if i extrapolate on or you know expand on it and it, it, it interpretation is interpreting your own thoughts and imaginings because you have to interpret them to put them down on the paper um and your interpretations are different on paper than in your head always will be because it's it's amorphous it's always pliable in your imagination anything can work in your imagination it's, it's just when you, when you nail it down basically to the paper then whether it's going to work or not that specific way then you have to be able to um reinterpret it if it's not working reinterpret it another way be be pliable so what you thought was the perfect idea in your head didn't work out perfectly on paper but reinterpret it in another way another angle another point of view there then there's interpreting what you see in the world really you know how you're perceiving people and light and forms interpreting that into the drawing and the process because you're not a camera you're, you're an artist and you, you are the filter that and you're interpreting these thoughts and the feelings and perceptions and it's getting channeled down to your arm and from your head down to your to your arm and your hand and your pencil and what you draw and remember what you're drawing you know usually is a, an incredible abstraction of of the real world even though you could draw somebody that's in front of you and i go oh yeah that looks like that person but it's lines on paper still an incredible abstraction and an interpretation and so interpreting is is an important word actually all around it's a good question brent because there's all kinds of interpretations that we'll, we'll be doing and have to do interpreting our own emotions about something our own feelings about something you know because as an illustrator you do you read an article you're given a brief you still might be funny it might be or it might be serious and dark but all of that you 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 have feelings and interpretation that the in, in interpretation could be what we call the, the personal filter why which is what boils down to being style and what makes someone's work look like their work and not someone else's and you know vice versa that was so beautifully said and that needs to be noted somewhere it needs to be written down or uh, I guess we have it recorded and that's a good start but that was really a thoughtful and generous set of words thank you John for that <laughs> really it was I don't I, hear that often in my life so thank you <laughs> <laughs> well I, I stumbled through it because I was still thinking on, on how wonderful it was well one thing that I really look forward to and enjoying telling a student and this is based on one of the last statements you made and that is when I can look at a student's work and I can say wow that looks like you did it you don't have to sign it it looks like your work and I think that's what you're alluding to and we all know we can pick a John Foster out of a lineup of a million paintings from across the street because your work looks like you 
Yeah. It looks like your work. Thank you. And it, but it, and I mean, just to be fair, there were times that someone would go, well, is that Phil Hale or John Foster? But I believe that I have, you know, through all of this time and, and, and influences and, and boiling it, boiling, boiling the soup or simmering the soup of influences in me have, I think, hopefully come to something that is, you know, me. Although I still look around and think, wow, I really wish I had more of a cool style like that or or that person's course. I think we probably will always do that. Grass is greener kind of thing. Um, But thank you. I'm glad that it appears that way. I would like you to recount the story. And this has absolutely maybe nothing to do with anything that we've talked about today. But we were having just casual conversations and I said something about Falcon 56 and you turned and looked at me and tell us part of that story. Well, yes, this is, I think when we truly bonded and then, you know, the unbreakable bond, our <laughs> eyes locked, Thank you. our eyes locked over a, a, the nerdy obsession of remote control airplanes. Cause both Brent and I, uh, have, have, and definitely had this passion as, as young men and, uh, young teen as teenagers, um, that building and flying your own remote control airplane. Again, this is before the electric stuff and, or you could go to even like a Walmart and buy, you know, a styrofoam remote control electric plane. Uh, this would, these were nitrous, uh, fuel powered little engines. And you got a, you got a, a long rectangular box full of balsa wood sticks and a piece of paper with directions. And you put this together and we, you know, so the fact that Brent flew remote control airplanes was, you know, cool enough. But the fact is he mentioned the Falcon 56. That was my first plane, my first remote control airplane. To, and that was, and that was Brent's baby too. And we both learned, we cut our teeth basically on, uh, that, that plane, the Falcon 56, which was a, uh, was a, a kind of like a mid wing, uh, advanced trainer but it wasn't mid-wing it was it, it was on top it was it, a top no, it wing, was but. a mid-wing because it was cut into the fuselage oh that's true right and an advanced trainer so then put around in the sky it could do some pretty exotic uh aerobatics and uh and uh and it was one of the some of the most joyous times in my, in my teenage years is the, in, in prideful times too, because I did a good job on building that plane and flying it, loved making it, and it worked. And then flying it was all very exciting. And then you know to share that with Brent, I had not run into someone else who was, you know, into remote control airplanes and building them forever since since that period in my life. And so then I ran out and and did buy one of those cheap little styrofoam ones. (laughs) I was trying to fly it around in the studio, uh, poorly for a while, but we, we, we had a good, uh, I hope you had a good time, Brent. I did. Oh my gosh. It was such a great time in my life. And I was, 
really kind of hitting my stride in illustration at the same time. And the, the one thing that I think John and I both realized when we had this epiphany of we built the exact same airplane, that was not an airplane a lot of people built because it wasn't the easiest plane to learn how to fly. Remember, back in those days, you had to have you had to apply for and retain an AMA license, Academy of Model Aeronautics. It cost you money. With that license and that fee, you got $3 million of liability. These things were dangerous. You had to be in a club. You had to take instructions from certified instructors. And then finally, you got your solo pin. But this plane was a sim. Okay, we're going to nerd out here. So. <laughs> It was a semi-symmetrical airfoil, which means it was a little bit harder and faster to get off the ground and to fly, but the thing could fly upside down all day long, and it wasn't as stable as a trainer. So for me to look at John and say, wow, you chose that airplane on purpose, as did I, I think we kind of shared this Cavalier yeah, I'm going to do this because we're it's doing not it easy. Right. Yeah, we're doing it right. <laughs> yeah, we're going to do it because it's a little harder than than normal. And I guess that's that's youth for you, I guess. Yeah, it it, it did. Well, it worked out for a while. I did learn. There's many good flights with it. I, of course, I did finally, well, demolish it a, a couple of times. Um, but it, I, uh, I did, I think yours is still in one piece though, right? It is. And wow, because back in that day you had to build them and that was good because when you crashed them, which yeah. everybody did, we used to call that re-kitting your airplane, <laughs> which means you just turned it into a big, you know, pile of sticks and wood, but you built it. So when you had to repair it, you knew what to do. Yep. Yep. It, and, and what, and it was almost like a, a, just a, you know, your baby and you're like, Oh, first aid, get it I, back together. And, I, uh, I remember taking it out to the flying field for the first time. And of course the other instructors look it over and they say, okay, we're going to do shakedown. You know, this is your plane. If it flies, it flies. If it doesn't, it's your fault. And they yeah. would, you know, you'd see them hit the gas and that thing would take off down the runway and the first time it goes into the air, I mean, there's no other feeling besides yeah. that because it's the, the you have to install the radio, you have to install the engine. I built a a, a break-in stand or a run-in stand for the engine. There's just yeah. a thousand things that have to go right, and it's a great feeling of accomplishment. Yeah, I mean, you're running all the operating surfaces on it. Uh, you know, you've you're you've been running the linkages to them that you've putting in the hinges and, and, and getting it, you know, functioning with the servos. I mean, you've built a little airplane. You didn't go buy an airplane. You built from scratch, basically a little, a, a little airplane with a mean little engine up front. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and when it got in the air, yes. And then, and then when they did a shakedown and they were confident and they're like doing, you know, doing rolls and, loops and flying by upside down and whatever uh it was you know you yeah pride joy and then excited and then and then wanting to hope you know when am i going to be able to 
flight like that. <laughs> right, right. Well, John, this has been an absolutely, this has just been so fun. And I always like talking to you. And I think that you have imparted some very important information on many important subjects. And I really want to thank you for being here. And I appreciate your time and your mental efforts throughout your life and your artwork so much. Thank you, Brent. You know, I love always talking with you because you're easy, easy to talk to. And, um, and you're my favorite. And, uh, and, and I had a great, I had a good time. I had a great time. Um, so thank you for the opportunity. Maybe we can do it again. I would, I would. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, John. All right. Have a good day, Brent.